Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, A centurion came to him, asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Thank you, Ian, for reading for us, and good morning to you all. It's good to see so many of you here. Sorry for those who've got the cheap seats around the corner. You'll just have to listen in, um, but very good to see you uh, all here, whether you're visiting us uh, this weekend. I know some were up for the wedding that was here yesterday. Uh, whatever it is, it's very good to see you um, here with us uh, this morning. Please keep your Bibles open there at page 972. We're going to be looking at that passage together over the next few minutes, and as we prepare to do so, uh, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word, and we pray this morning, please give us insight into your word. Please cause our faith to grow, and cause our vision and love of your Son, the Lord Jesus, to be ever-expanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember well the feeling at school at the beginning of first break on a Thursday morning when we were let out of class and we would all rush to the sports notice board. We were going to find out who had been picked for the team that weekend. And when you arrived, there were normally people in front of you kind of looking at the notice board and you were trying to see whether you had made the team and people would be saying things like, James is captain or Rachel's made the first team. And I'd be at the back wondering whether I'd made the team at all, any of them. Uh, often the news wasn't very encouraging. Um, but it was a pretty unsettling feeling as you're, you were waiting. Uh, on Thursday morning, some of you will have, I guess, received A-level results. 300,000 young people around the country uh, had that long and anxious wait uh, put to an end. Have I got into the uni I wanted? Did I make the grade? Um, I've spoken with people recently who have been looking for a job, and that feeling as they send off the application or walk away from the interview, thinking, did I say the right thing? Did I do enough? I've uh, recently uh, been listening to the autobiography of Michelle Obama. Um, 
It got off a little, to a bit of a slow start, but I've been enjoying it. If you're looking for a book recommendation for a long drive or something this summer. Um, she's a very strong and empowered, successful sort of woman. And so I was rather surprised to discover through the book that all her life she's been kind of dogged by this question, am I good enough? Um, her confidence was knocked as a young lady, and this, this thing keeps coming up through the book. Uh, so when she applied to Harvard, am I good enough? When she became a mother for the first time, am I good enough? First Lady of the United States still asking, am I good enough? The question haunts her. Maybe it does you too. Perhaps you've always struggled with that feeling that you're just not quite good enough in one area of life or another. When it comes to God, I wonder if you feel good enough. Do you think you've done enough? Do you feel like you deserve a pass or a place on the team? Over the summer, we've been exploring a section of Matthew's gospel in which it says that Jesus went around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where the repeated focus is on who will get into the kingdom of heaven, who's in, who's out, who makes the grade, who's good enough. And the answer we're going to see this morning may not be what we would expect Perhaps you're someone who's always been successful in life. However high the bar is set, you always seem to be able to jump over it. You've uh, succeeded in your chosen career. You've got qualifications pouring out of your ears. And frankly, you're not used to the concern or even the idea that you might not be good enough because in every, every area of life, you always have been. Well, Jesus has a word of warning for you this morning because he turns on its head our expectations of who is in and who is out of the kingdom of heaven. It's a message for all of us, whatever our level of confidence or anxiety, however worthy or insufficient we feel. A surprising message, I think, about who's in and who's out of the kingdom of heaven. And it all comes about because of the most unlikely encounter Last week, we saw how Jesus finished the greatest sermon ever told and came down from the mountainside and was approached by a leprous man, an unclean, infectious, dangerous, run-a-mile kind of guy. But Jesus came close and touched and healed him and seemingly endorsed his faith and included him in the kingdom. But now we see another man approaching Jesus, and it's another surprise, but not because of his low social standing but rather because of his high social standing. Take a look down at verse five. Verse five. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Now that is surprising at so many levels. A centurion was a senior officer in the army. He would theoretically have 100 men at his command, centurion, but often it was more than that. Now, can you imagine having 100 people at your command? I'm trying to imagine in this room how many of those pews would make up 100. The the, the best part of this block of people, can you imagine having that many people at your command? It'd make you feel pretty important, wouldn't it? He was probably one of the most senior military officials in the area. What's more, he was a non-Jew and part of the army occupying Israel. Their responsibility was to control the local population of which Jesus was one. Now, what would you have thought as you saw a man like that asking the ladies and gentlemen to step aside as he makes a line towards Jesus? You might have thought, 
Jesus is about to be arrested. Watch out, lads, it's the law. Something like that. So what a surprise when he gets to Jesus and opens his mouth and asks him for help. What's a man like this doing asking for help from a man like Jesus, a a relative nobody? Not only that, do you see what he calls him at the beginning of verse 6? Lord, this is bizarre. We're not used to seeing people of high social standing humble themselves so much as to ask an inferior for help and then to address them as their superior, Lord. The centurion's need becomes immediately obvious in verse 6. He says, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Ah, well now we can see where the story's going, surely. He's going to ask Jesus to come, Jesus is going to come, touch his uh, servant and he's going to be healed. It'll It'll be a repeat of what happened with the leper. That's surely what's going to happen. And that seems to be exactly what Jesus suggests. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Surely that's what the centurion came for, right? But then we get the big surprise of this encounter in what the centurion says in response to Jesus. Look down at verse eight. Verse eight. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I'd say to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's surprising that he doesn't want Jesus to come, but it's astonishing why. From those words, we can see this centurion recognizes something about himself and something about Jesus. Firstly, something about himself. He recognizes that he's not even worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. Perhaps because he knows his own sinfulness. Perhaps because he just recognizes the majesty and authority of Jesus that raises him above everything human. Perhaps the two of those are actually quite related and as he sees the majesty of Jesus, it makes him more acutely aware of his own sin and unworthiness. Whatever it was, this man comes to Jesus with a remarkable humility, asking him for help, calling him Lord, saying, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. He impresses me hugely because I think it must only be harder as you are someone with great authority yourself to come in humility to someone and recognize them as having more authority than you, asking them for help. But that's what we see here with this centurion. He recognizes his unworthiness before Jesus. But he also recognizes something about Jesus Calling Jesus Lord shows us that this centurion holds Jesus in very high regard. But what he says next shows us he doesn't just hold Jesus in high regard, he holds him in the very highest regard. And it shows us the remarkable extent of his faith in Jesus. Jesus has said, I will go and heal him. We might have expected the centurion to say, yes, yes, please, Jesus, do come. See my servant, hold your hand over the place on his back, say a prayer, anything, please. But his faith in the authority of Jesus is staggering. It's easy to let what the centurion says here wash over us. Please don't let that happen. Try to absorb what it is that he is saying about Jesus here. Notice what he believes Jesus can do. He says, Jesus, you don't need to come. I'm a soldier. I've got soldiers under my command. I know how this works, okay? I say to this soldier, go. He goes. That one, come. Bam, he's here. That servant, do this. He does it. And he says, you've got that kind of authority over my paralyzed servant's back. Just say the word. 
and my servant will be healed. You see, this centurion doesn't think Jesus is just some healer. He believes Jesus has utter authority over the created order. That with just a word and from a distance, Jesus can command the cells of his servant's back to rearrange themselves in such a way that he is no longer paralyzed or in pain. He says, you, Jesus, can do that with as much authority and certainty as I can command my soldiers and servants. I find it astonishing to even think of someone having that much authority, but this centurion believes it. I mean, really believes it. Enough to say in his desperation, you don't need to come, Jesus, just say the word. Amazing, humble faith in the total authority of Jesus. Even Jesus is blown away. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Indeed, people's responses to Jesus had been and would continue to be very mixed. Another big theme in this section of Matthew's gospel is the authority of Jesus and how people are responding to it. Through chapter 8, Jesus demonstrates his authority over one thing after another. It's like rapid fire. He shows his authority over sickness, nature, evil spirits, even the authority to forgive sins. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we saw that he taught with authority. Just look down at chapter 7, verse 28. Chapter 7, 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teacher's of the law. But then through chapter 8, we see he not only teaches with authority, he acts with authority too. Because exactly what the centurion requests, Jesus does. Look at verse 13. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. You see, Jesus acts with authority. The crowds recognize the source of this authority. Just look over to chapter 9, verse 8. Jesus has healed another paralyzed man, and 9 verse 8, when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given, him such, given such authority to men. The crowds recognized it, but the religious leaders disputed it, saying he had no authority to forgive sins. And later on in the gospel, perhaps you remember that they say, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And of course, Jesus finishes the gospel famously with the Great Commission, saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The centurion seems to recognize, more than any other so far, that Jesus has this kind of all-encompassing authority. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He can see that Jesus isn't just a teacher about the kingdom, but he is the king of the kingdom. He has a humble faith in the total authority of Jesus. And it's a challenge to each of us. Do I have that kind of faith in Jesus? Do I recognize him as a great teacher only? Or as the one with total authority over the created order, the king? For some, perhaps it's more than a challenge. It's a rebuke. You've been going to church for a good while. You've seen more evidence of who Jesus is than this centurion had. And you think I should have 
that kind of strength of faith in Jesus? Well, if it's a rebuke, as it is to me, let the centurion also be an encouragement and an inspiration to respond to Jesus like this, to know that he is someone you can come and ask about anything because nothing stands outside of the reach of his authority. Perhaps like this centurion, you've got used to having significant authority yourself and you're not used to asking others for help. Perhaps that makes you uncomfortable and awkward even to think of asking others for help. And then that translates into your relationship with God. You find that difficult too, to ask him for help. Aspire again to have the humble faith of this centurion who could see when he was outranked and had the humility to call another Lord. What Jesus shows us next is that it is this kind of humble faith which gains access to the heavenly feast. Look down again at verse 10 and 11. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What's Jesus talking about there, the east and the west? Well, what stood to the east and the west of Israel? Not Israel. And who lived in not Israel? Non-Jews, Gentiles, like this centurion. And the Jews had a fiercely nationalistic understanding of their religion. They were the people of God. They were the ones who would receive the heavenly reward of God. Others, the Gentiles, were off the list outside the kingdom. They didn't pass the test of ethnicity and heritage. They weren't good enough. And so it was very controversial of Jesus to say, in response to the humble faith of this Gentile centurion, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast. With who? With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Judaism. They'll take their seats with the fathers because they're truly part of the family, children of the kingdom. And this idea of a feast was a picture of the future reward and joy waiting in heaven for God's people. It's an amazing moment, as Jesus says to those who are following him, who thought that these things were just for them, that in fact they are open to anyone. It's a declaration of inclusion, a throwing open of the gates of heaven to all people who, like this centurion, have recognized the authority of Jesus and put their faith in him. This alone is amazing enough, but then comes the astonishing and frankly astonishingly offensive announcement that many of the Jews who would have assumed their inclusion in the kingdom on the basis of their ancestry will be thrown outside. Look at verse 12. Jesus continued, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That language outside the darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, it's all language the Jews associated with the fate of the Gentiles but it's being applied to them. He's turning their understanding of these things on its head. Jesus says this because the Jews haven't been showing this sort of faith in him. Verse 10 again, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. That's a commendation of the centurion, yes, but it's also a condemnation of Jesus' own people, the Jews. And the fact is, many denied his authority altogether. This, says Jesus, 
will have eternal consequences. Because, and this is the headline, to be part of the kingdom, we must accept the authority of Jesus the King. About 12 years ago, I got a job working in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, but to start working there, you also have to pass a series of rigorous uh, checks before they'll issue you with a security pass. Uh, as you'd expect, those uh, checks are pretty rigorous. Um, but my favorite one was this form that I had to fill in, a very long form, asking all sorts of questions. And one question I was asked, promise you this is true, is are you or have you ever been involved in an attempt to overthrow a government. <laughs> I thought, hmm, just think, 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 have I? Just, I'm not, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, no, I don't think so. I, I, would, I would have loved to have known how many people particularly, yes. Um, I, I didn't think it was perhaps the uh, most subtle or, dare I say, the most effective way to disrupt a terrorist plot. Uh, we'll get them with this question, this will trip him up. Um, <laughs> And I was very tempted to take the yes box, but I didn't because I knew exactly what would happen. I wouldn't get the pass, and I wouldn't be able to do the job. It's obvious, if you, if you think you're going to tick that box, you're going to be turned down. You can't work at a place like that if you're not willing to accept the authority of the government. You just have to. To be part of the kingdom of heaven, you have to accept the authority of Jesus the King. Think of it in the context of a school. If a people reject the authority of their teacher, well, they get in trouble of some sort. If they keep doing it, they go to the headmaster. They reject the authority of the headmaster, well, maybe they're suspended, but eventually they're expelled. That just can't continue. You simply can't continue to exist as a citizen of a kingdom without accepting the authority of the king. To be part of the kingdom of heaven, you have to accept the authority of Jesus the king the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because they refuse to accept the authority of Jesus the King. In saying this, Jesus redefines what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. It's nothing to do with ancestry or heritage or being good enough. Humble faith gains access to the heavenly feast. Humble faith and nothing else. Many will come from the east and the west, but the subjects will be thrown outside. The contrast couldn't be more stark. The stakes couldn't be higher. Jesus says our eternity rests on how we respond to him. I wonder how you respond to him. We've recently got a new prime minister. Uh, you might have heard. Uh, but I wonder if you've heard how some have been responding to that. Um, some have been holding up signs saying, not my prime minister. It's uh, even a hashtag on Twitter, hashtag not my PM. Perhaps you can sympathize with that sentiment, I don't know. But I, I think that, that that sentiment reflects a, a shift that I think has happened in our culture over recent years. So often these days when people disagree with an authority, they don't dispute its wisdom. I disagree with that, I think that's wrong. They do something quite different. They dispute its legitimacy. You're not my prime minister. Now, whatever any one of us thinks about his politics or his character, on which I make no comment, the fact is, he is our prime minister. But our culture at the moment seems to only accept the legitimacy of an authority to the extent that it conforms with what I already think or want. And I mention this because... 
I think that's a very similar dynamic as to that which is at the heart of sin. We deny the legitimate authority of God apart from insofar as he exercises exercises it in a way that pleases me. But as soon as he says or stands for something I don't like or says that I need to change, he's not my king, but he is. The truth is that Jesus is not just a teacher or a politician whose thoughts we can reflect on, embrace or not. He's the king of the kingdom whose rule we must accept. And however much we protest that he's not my king, that doesn't change the reality that he is. Perhaps you're not a Christian here this morning and you've been resisting the rule of Jesus for a long time because you're afraid of some way that he may change your life. Perhaps you are a Christian, but you've been doing that. Friend, Jesus is your king. And we only resist that when we don't understand or believe that he is a king who loves us and whose rule is kind and gracious, who, unlike any prime minister or any other earthly power, is totally devoted to our flourishing at any cost, even the cost of his life. When we know he's that sort of king, we'll want to call him my king. We'll delight to submit to his rule. We'll want to shout for joy that we're part of his kingdom because what a king he is. If you want to be part of the kingdom, we must accept the authority of Jesus the king. And if you know what he's like, you'll want to. And he's a king with all authority, including, as we discover at the start of chapter nine, the authority to forgive sins, to forgive any number of years of rejection and decisions that have been an affront to his loving rule over us. Because when he died on the cross, he was shut out. He was exiled from the presence of God the Father, punished so that we could have a seat at the heavenly feast. We wonder who's in, who's out. It's for all of us who will come to Jesus with the sort of humble faith that we see in this centurion, asking for his help. Can I urge you to do that this morning if you haven't already done so? Accept his authority as your king. Accept his forgiveness for all your sins. And you'll be a citizen of the kingdom, a child of heaven. But there's also a warning here to all of us who think that they are in. Because Jesus makes it clear that some think they're in when in fact they're not. He's clear that no ancestry or pedigree or past service or moral record will gain us access to the heavenly feast, only humble faith. So if you think you're in, and I'm guessing many of us here this morning really are, can I just encourage you to check on what basis you think you're in? Are you relying on who your parents are or were? On your church attendance? On which church you attend? on your doctrinal accuracy, on your service of the church, past or present, of what position you hold within the church. I've been very challenged by this this week. Those things will never save you. And Jesus warns the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness. That is those who think they deserve their salvation. But wonderfully... No ancestry or pedigree can exclude us from the kingdom of heaven and the heavenly feast. I'm a Gentile. I guess the vast majority of us in this room are. Jesus says we're welcome. 
and he wants us to be part of his kingdom. All that counts is faith in Jesus. And these verses should be a deep encouragement to anyone here who struggles with a sense of unworthiness. At the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, it is the poor in spirit, like this centurion who received the kingdom of heaven. So when we put our faith in Jesus as our authoritative king, we can have complete confidence in his favor and reward, whatever spiritual qualifications we feel that we lack. Not because we're good enough, we're not but because he is gracious to forgive. You may feel very unworthy, like you don't even deserve to be here this morning or to call yourself a Christian because perhaps you see your sin, perhaps you recognize the towering majesty and holiness of Jesus and you think, who am I? But Jesus looks on a heart like that, a heart of humble faith, and he wells up with love and forgiveness. And just as he said to the centurion, Go, it will be done for you just as you believed it would. In the same way as you seek his favor in your own life, he sends you out with a smile on his face and with the assurance that you are part of the family of the faith, a true child of the kingdom. And so friends, do you trust him as the king with all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth? Do you see your total unworthiness of him in light of his towering majesty? Are you willing to humble yourself and ask him for help? Then come to him. Those who come to him with humble faith gain access to the heavenly feast. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus never rejects those who come to him humbly and in faith, whether a leper or a Gentile or sinners like us. And we thank you for the example of this centurion, his astonishing faith in the total authority of Jesus. And we pray, please give us such faith to accept Jesus as our King. Help us to do that in the practical details of how we live our lives. And we thank you that in your grace you offer us forgiveness and the confidence that we will one day take our places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.